Let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 19. I would imagine if we can have Christmas in July, I guess we can also have Easter and Good Friday in November. That is what we have found. Um, if you're here, uh, we're glad that you made it this morning. You, you got the timing right. If you were here an hour early, you got to go to Sunday school. If you're here two hours early, then um, I can't help you. Uh, the way it is. I got um, a funny meme uh, from uh, Ann Jarbo this morning. She goes, you know, Calvinists do not have to set their clocks back because we saved an hour last year, and we know once saved, always saved, which I thought was pretty funny, you know, but anyway, I'm glad that you fixed your clock. That's good. Um, we, we find ourselves uh, at the place where the crucifixion takes place. We have seen Jesus is delivered over to be crucified. We have seen uh, his interactions with Pontius Pilate last week, uh, and we are going to look at John chapter 19, beginning in verse 17, and I will go through the whole chapter. I want you to give context for this whole um, place. This is a very um, difficult place to be in the scriptures, um, but it is a, a key text. Um, it is the cross. It is why we gather today and are able to gather today and call God our Father. It is a wonderful piece of scripture, even if it is um, brutal. Uh, today, I'd like to frame what we're going to be talking around, about around these three points. Uh, the first is the veracity of Jesus' death, uh, thinking about the prophets. The second is the brutality of Jesus' death. And the last is the totality of Jesus' death. And you can see that I was working some wordplay there. Um, so, uh, before we read the text, before we read something that is just so significant. Um, let's pray. Father, as we think about all that Jesus has done for us, the life he lived, the death he died, Father, I pray, Lord, that we would ponder that. But Father, I pray, Lord, that we would just not think upon these things. But I pray, Lord, that your living and active word would work in our lives to transform us more and more into the image of Jesus. Father, thank you. We are so grateful that we are saved and forgiven and beloved by you because of what Jesus has done for us. Father, in the midst of thinking about John 19, Father, I pray, Lord, that we would uphold your holiness and your justice but we would just be washed in your love, in your grace, in your mercy towards us. Because all of your wrath has been extinguished for those who believe in Christ. Father, help us. Help us to submit ourselves to your word and cause faith to grow so that we might be encouraged to live for you and to serve you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in John chapter 19. I'll pick it up. Um, so they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side on the cross, 
one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths and with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. And we all say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Well, let's think about this. We see this in, in the Gospel of John. Uh, when we look at um, verse 36, we actually see what's going on and what John is really getting at. He's talking about the truthfulness of the death of Jesus, the prophetic fulfillment of Jesus' death. We see this in verse 36. He says, for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Now, when we think about this, the, the, the culmination is the cross, but we see all of these things happening that were foretold in the Old Testament. And we're talking about upwards of a thousand years before the events actually took place. Jesus is now fulfilling all of these things. 
Let me just run through them so that you understand, because no other religion out there actually talks about this. Like when we think about Islam and Muhammad, they don't talk about Muhammad being the one who comes or fulfills these prophecies. You know, Buddha, Hinduism, it's Jesus and Christianity that talks about there is one who will come and he will fulfill these prophecies. So for example, let me give you just a few. In Psalm 41, it talks about the Messiah being betrayed by friends, and certainly Judas betrayed Jesus. In Psalm 31, verse 11, it talks about the disciples forsaking him. And certainly the disciples scattered like cockroaches when the lights went on, right? We see that there are false accusations and and silence before the judges. We see that in Isaiah 53 and Psalm 35. We see that he he has a formal acquittal in Isaiah 53, 9. Do you remember last week when we were talking about Pilate? He says three different times, I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. And yet, Pilate did not do what he knew to be true. He allowed him to be crucified. We see that he is numbered with the transgressors. We see that Jesus is actually um, crucified with thieves around him in Isaiah 53. We think about the crucifixion that happened. Now, Psalm 22 is specific. We read that earlier in Psalm 22, verse, um, if you have your Bibles, you can turn over there. Psalm 22, because I want to spend just a little bit of time there. Psalm 22, Jesus actually is quoting this in, in, in the seven sayings that Jesus quotes. We see him saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? I think what Jesus is doing there is he's recounting all of the Psalms and he's applying Psalm 22 to his own life. And what we find there is that in Psalm 22, look at um, uh, what happens in verse 16. Now this is, this is written a thousand years before Jesus. In Psalm six, uh, 22 verse 16 it says, For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Crucifixion had not been invented yet. Crucifixion was invented by the Persians in about 700 BC, perfected by the Romans uh, around the time of Christ and probably 100 years prior. We also see in Psalm 22, we we read this. Look at verse um, 7 and 8. All who seek me All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. They say, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. You see the mocking part? He goes, oh, you have great faith? Then let this great faith save you from the cross. Do you really believe in Jesus? Uh, You really believe in God? Let God save you. We also see in Psalm 22, and I think this is significant, and look at verse 22, verse 18. It says, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. We see this being fulfilled in John chapter 19. Now, I want you to see something in in Psalm 22. We, We see this as Jesus is working his way through Psalm 22, again, having memorized, you know, having actually written all of the scriptures, when we think about this, this verse 6, this is, a, this is an intriguing verse. Um, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. It's an interesting, you know, to actually call ourselves a worm. Well, the, when looking at this particular uh, worm, as it were, uh, there's actually this word tola in the Hebrew, 
And this was a worm that actually, when you would crush this worm, there, there, was, there would be valuable crimson dye would be made in the midst of crushing this worm. So that to release the dye that was within the worm, the animal had to be crushed so that its blood would flow out. James Boyce comments that this worm, or Jesus, was crushed for God's people. His blood was shed for us so that we might be clothed in bright raiment. The crushing that took place. Again, we, we see all of these things happening. We see that Jesus cries out, I, I am thirsty in Psalm 69. We see that he yields up his spirit into the Father's hands in Psalm 31. We see that there is a preservation of his bones from being broken in Psalm 34.10, and then we see that he is buried in the tomb of a rich man in Isaiah 53. All of these things John is using, and some of these he's alluding to specifically saying, these things are significant so that you know when Jesus died, he was fulfilling all of the Old Testament prophecies. All of these things are pointing to Jesus. All the signs, everything, every article of clothing that the high priest would wear pointed to Jesus. Every furniture item that was in the tabernacle and later in the temple was pointing to Jesus. Everything is pointing to Jesus. As a matter of fact, we use that today when we think about the cross. We use the term, it is the crux of the matter. And maybe you don't use that a whole lot, but I mean, if you did, what you're saying is, this is what is important. The crux of the matter is, this is the heart of what I'm trying to get you to understand, and it is the cross. And the cross is showing that Jesus was the one that God had prophesied and promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter um, 12, 15, and 17. We see that through the line of Abraham, that all the world would be blessed. How would the world be blessed through the line of Abraham? It's because God would send a Messiah, an anointed one, a Christ, and he would come and bear all the sins of everyone who would believe. And in believing in him, we might have life and joy in his name. That's the glory that everything in the Old Testament is pointing to. Everything is pointing in that direction. It's all pointing to Jesus. Now, Let's talk for a second about the, the crucifixion itself. Because if, if the veracity and the truthfulness of, of what we see as John is speaking about, we also see that there's a brutality that occurs within the crucifixion. There's a, there's a brutality that occurs here that, that, that John doesn't go into all the details. If you look at verse 17, so they took Jesus out and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the skull. Now, the, we know that Jesus in chapter 19, verse 1, and, but then... Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed in a purple robe. And they mocked him and spit him and hit him in the face and, and punched him. And so at this point, Jesus is very weary. There's this brutality that is coming across for us. And, and what John is trying to get us is he's saying, the Lord God of heaven, the Son of God, died this death so that we would not have to die it. But he, but he makes reference to this idea of just, they crucified him in verse 18, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Well, when we think about um, crucifixion, certainly the, 
the Jews of the day, the Roman citizens of the day, understood what crucifixion was. Um, when we think about crucifixion, um, we often think of Jesus being up on a hill with three different crosses, up high, but the reality is most people were crucified about six to 12 inches off the ground. And they did that so that you could see the person who was the, the troublemaker, the lawbreaker. And crucifixion was meant to be um, a sign that you should not mess with the Roman government or we will crucify you. But not only are you only six to 12 inches off the ground, but you're also naked. Like most, almost all people who were crucified were naked. That's why it says that the, the soldiers were actually casting lots for his garments. You know, there were four different soldiers and, and typically a, a Jewish citizen or who, who lived in that day might have a, a turban, they might have a scarf, they might have a loincloth and shoes and then an outer garment. And so they divided up all five articles of what Jesus had on. And then they said, hey, there's one left over. It's the tunic. It's seamless. Let's cast lots rather than breaking it up and departing it. Now, they didn't know at the time that they're actually fulfilling scripture, but they were. In a similar way, Pilate didn't understand when he wrote the inscription, the hail king of the Jews, not only in Latin or Aramaic, but also in Greek, so that everybody who walked by, and again, crucifixions happened in a public place so that when people would walk by, they would see these crucified individuals. Let me, let me give you an example of this um, from history. Um, you guys have probably heard of the gladiator war or the war of Spartacus. Um, some of you have heard that. This was um, often ca called the Third Servile War. And this revolt began in 73 BC with the escape of around 70 slave gladiators from a gladiator school in Capua. Some of you, you know, have, um, have heard of this. And they easily defeated the small Roman force sent to recapture them. And within two years, they had been joined by some 120,000 men and women and children. Within just a couple years. The able-bodied adults of the large group were a surprisingly effective armed force. But eventually, eventually, the Roman Senate actually sent out eight legions under the harsh but effective leadership of Marcus uh, Crassus, and they destroyed the army of slaves in 71 BC. Now, the reason I bring that up is because after they had utterly defeated, they took some 6,000 survivors, the Roman government did, and they crucified all 6,000 survivors on the Appian Way, which was from the southeast uh, Italian town along the coast all the way to Rome, and they would space them apart all the way along this major thoroughfare, essentially I-70 on our way for, for you know, 120 miles. So the, the Jews understood what crucifixion was meant for. It was meant to say, this is someone who is not abided by the law, who has gone against Roman custom or Roman law, and we are teaching him a lesson. But even beyond that, when we look at the crucifixion of Jesus, you know, and, and the, again, the fulfillment of prophecy that occurs, um, but, but there was this, 
this death of death and the death of Christ, as John Owen puts it. We'll get to the idea of tetelestai, and it is finished in a second. But there's another aspect of this that is, is quite troubling. And um, when we think about when the uh, Romans actually wanted to give Jesus um, sour wine, I mean, this is despicable, actually. So notice what it says in verse 28. After this, this is all in the midst of the crucifixion, the brutality of this. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. And certainly he would thirst. Now, John uses that detail to remind us that Jesus is a man, not just God. He's 100% God and 100% man. But he also uses this, and this is the brutality of what we see. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Now, here's what's weird about this. Why do they have a jar of sour wine just sitting around? And where do Roman soldiers get sponges? Like, where does this come from? This is the, the, the sad part of this is that a Roman, um, a Roman soldier was actually given, you know, his armor, his sword, his helmet, but also in order to actually um, be, clen be cleansed, you know, just so you know, you're out and about as a Roman soldier, and they didn't have what we would call toilet paper back then. It was not a good time to live. And so what the Romans would use, they would actually use a sponge to clean themselves and they would use sour wine to dip the sponge into to keep it antiseptic, as it were. Alcohol was put in there to keep it from, you know, breeding other germs and other things. So in an utter place of just absolute mockery, they actually used a sponge and sour wine to give Jesus something to drink. This was not an act of mercy or compassion, but rather this was an act of just utter brutality. All of this took place. And, and, and again, John you know, talks about this. The other gospel writers speak to these, these facts of the crucifixion where, where God takes something that is probably the most shameful death, but in the midst of the most shameful death, what God does is he saves his people from their sins. You see, the execution of Jesus was the execution of God's plan of salvation. That's what we see occurring. And what we find is that written here is in verse 29, after this jar sour wine on a hyssop branch was held to his mouth, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, initially, think about this. He gave up his spirit. No one takes Jesus' life from him, but rather he offers it willingly as a sacrifice for us. But when he says it is finished, it's just one Greek word. And that Greek word is tetelestai. And what he's saying there is that there is a totality of, of what I have done has been finished. When tetelestai means not just it is finished, but rather it is paid in full. And when we look at ancient documents, um, we would see that when somebody would borrow money from another person and then they paid that money back, there would be a stamp and oftentimes it would be stamped tetelestai, paid in full. So the question is 
For us, what does Jesus pay in full? Because when he says it is finished, I don't think he's just saying that his crucifixion is over, that the suffering is now ended. But rather, what he is saying is, I have now completed my mission on earth. I have now done what the Father has given me to do. I have now allowed the enemies of God to be welcomed and adopted into the family of God. When Jesus says, it is finished, it it is the very word that all of heaven, that all of the earth that is groaning since the day of the fall has been waiting to hear. Because when he says to tell us die, when he says it is finished, it means this, is that there is now a way for the broken enemies of God to be reconciled to God the Father in heaven. That everything that fell apart because of the fall of man, that Jesus is beginning to recreate and reorder and renew all things. It is finished is saying that I have now made a way for you to be saved. So when he says to tell us die, it is a beautiful proclamation of victory, not defeat. I mean, when he utters to Telestai, it goes from this Roman cross being this horrific place of agony, degradation, and shame. And when Jesus says to Telestai and bears the wrath of God on our behalf, the cross becomes a symbol of hope. It becomes a symbol of life because of what Jesus has done for us. Now, there, there are really probably three different ways that we could think about um, this word tetelestai, um, or, or thinking about this, this idea of the finished work of Christ. Let me give you three theological terms just so that we understand. Um, but, but before I do that, um, there, with regard to this particular um, aspect, let me read for you uh, from uh, history. You know, Really, what we see in the idea of it is finished. Um, in the 11th century AD, there was a man named Anselm of Canterbury. And he published one of the most important theological books ever written, a work that significantly aided the understanding of Christians on a vitally important doctrinal matter. And the book was titled Cur Deus Homo, which in English means, Why the God Man? Or, Why did God become man? Like, why? And and this book arose um, from conversations Anselm had with a man named um, Basso. And I call him Basso because I feel bad calling him Boso. Um, Who was one of many people during that time who sought to be enlightened in the gospel. And responding to this earnest spiritual hunger for truth, Anselm applied his keen mind to the Bible's teaching of the incarnation and atonement of Christ. Later, Anselm published his conclusions, thinking them important for the good of the wider church. And he presented these conclusions in this book called Cur Deus Homo. Probably the most significant was Anselm's teaching on the purpose and design of Christ's death. And here's where we're going with this, okay? Up until that time, the leading theory of the atonement in the Western church was the ransom theory. That was the the idea of 
that, that this teaching followed Jesus' important statement that the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. And as the early church conceived this ransom, Christ died to offer a payment in his blood to the devil who held mankind captive in sin. And even so, great a theologian as Augustine of Hippo spoke of the cross as the devil's mousetrap. And under this view, Satan had secured the right of possession over mankind because of sin, so that Christ had to offer his death to the devil. Satan thought he had secured his victory over Jesus, but the power of divine life that he swallowed at the cross overthrew his realm of evil and death. But Anselm, and this is why this is important, Anselm correctly saw that this ransom theory gave too much credit to Satan, who never possessed a true right to mankind. Man's true debt is to God's holy justice and honor. It was broken. It was the broken law, not Satan, that held sinful man in condemnation. This insight reveals man's predicament in sin. Anselm, and I quote Anselm here, which I've never done before, sinful man owes God a debt for sin which he cannot repay. And at the same time, he cannot be saved without repaying. This problem unsolvable from the position of the sinner who possesses no coin with which to pay his debt of sin provides the answer to the mystery of why God became man. It also answers a question raised by Jesus' cry from the cross, hearing Jesus' victory peal, it is finished. We see that he makes atonement for our sins. You see, what Anselm and later on, there were, and, and anytime you have this bit of theology, there, there later came a, 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 a man named uh, Peter Abelard, um, who later on was, um, who said, no, that's not right. We just think that Jesus gave us an example. That sounds pretty similar, doesn't it? Rather than Jesus actually paying the debt for those who would believe. You know, Peter Abelard argued that Christ did not die to make any payment at all, but merely offered himself as an example of divine love and of human virtue. Praise God that the church actually said that Peter Abelard was a heretic and that they embraced Anselm's view of this penal substitutionary atonement. That's what we find happening here. Now, when Jesus says it is finished, he is saying that the wrath of God, the righteous wrath of God was placed upon me. We call that propitiation. And in the midst of this wrath of God being extinguished or exhausted upon Jesus upon the cross, and when he yells, it is finished, he makes a way. What, what he does is he redeems us. Now, redemption is the image of the marketplace, the metaphor of the marketplace. You, you may not, um, what, what you redeem today, you redeem gift cards, you might redeem coupons, you might redeem a coupon code or something like that, right? But what we find is that we are paid for by the blood of of the Lamb, by Jesus. We call that redemption. Propitiation, and then we think about redemption, and what happens in the midst of our redemption? Now we are reconciled to God. I mean, that's the beauty. We, and, and really, when we look at the New Testament letters that follow, the, the, the apostles and those authors of those letters are explaining that everything points to the cross. Everything points to our justification and our sanctification and our redemption and our atonement and, our, you know, and, and the future of glorification. All of these things are pointing in this direction and they're explaining salvation and they're encouraging people to live for Jesus and to believe and trust in him even in the worst situations. Everything 
All of the Old Testament was pointing to the cross, and often what we read throughout the New Testament, it's pointing back to the cross, because at the cross, we find that the work of God is finished. Now, before, I, before you, you know, leave today and you think, well, it's all finished. I've got nothing left to do, right? Because if Jesus has paid the way, then I'm good to go. I don't have to do anything, right? Oh, no, not so fast, my friends. Look at what happens, and I think this is um, really interesting in John chapter 19. Look at what he says, just in, um, as the soldiers are dividing up the garments, so the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Now, this is fascinating, because there are four women and the disciple, we think most likely John, who are at the cross. And I just want you to think about this. Think about all that Mary had pondered in her heart her entire life. But now she is witnessing the crucifixion of her oldest son. And the heartbreak, the heartbreak of one who sees, I mean, you guys know this, right? There's, there is no pain like parent pain <laughs> when you see your children suffering. When you see your children, um, as a matter of fact, when I think about Psalm 22, when it talks about my heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. I mean, certainly, that's not talking about Mary, but it's certainly when we see loved ones that we have, or our children in particular, and our children are suffering, the, the suffering that we feel is not physical, but it, it becomes physical. <laughs> I mean, you ever, you ever got to the point where your stomach hurts just because you're, it's all bound up in knots for your children? And I think this is remarkable because in the midst of the agony and the crushing weight of sin that Jesus is undergoing, do you see that Jesus is actually still ministering to those around him? In the midst of all of this, Jesus on the cross looks down upon Mary, his mother, and he says to John, we believe, the disciple, and he says this in John chapter 19. He says, woman, Behold your son. And she wasn't talking about behold your son, look at me. But she's saying, look at John, John. And then, she, and then he looks at the disciple. Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. We see that even in the midst of, you know, certainly the work of God is finished. And yet Jesus, full of compassion and grace, looks out for those in the midst, in his own midst, and sees the suffering that his mother is undergoing, and he says, John, you're now responsible for Mary, and Mary, I want you to look to John. I mean, that, that's a pretty good burden right there, right? I mean, two Mother's Day cards every year? I mean, he's got multiple phone calls to make. I mean, all of those things. He's got to take care of not only his own mother, but now he has another mother. And we think about that, and he's saying that Mary will be a blessing to you, and you will be a blessing to Mary. You see, when he says it is finished, what he's not saying is that our pursuit of holiness is not finished. He's not saying that, that your service to the king is finished. 
He's not saying those things, but he's saying, in a a sense, he's saying it is finished from his perspective, but really what he's saying from our perspective, and for those who believe in him, he's saying, now it begins. This life that I have promised you that will be full of joy will also be one filled with service and worship and love and sacrificial death on my behalf. That you're going to have to lay down your life like I've laid down mine. That you're going to have to love what I love and hate what I hate and pursue what I pursue. And in the midst of that, there will be great joy. And with John, he says, you've got a new mama. I want you to take care of her. Now, in a similar way, in a similar way, when we think about the gospel, what does it do? It knits us together into the family of God so that the burdens of the person in the row that you're sitting next to are also your burdens. And the joys of that person who's sitting in the row next to you are also your joys. And there's great delight because we we know that we are not alone. Brothers and sisters, when you are burdened, you feel so alone. But in the family of God, Within the body of Christ, there are other people praying and caring for and lifting up your arms. And then, on those moments of great joy, at weddings and the the birth of children and all of those other things, we as the family of God get to delight and to enjoy those things with our extended family. It is a beautiful thing. Now, I also am keenly aware that um, I do not in any way want you to think that you merit your salvation at all. There is um, this idea, I think, that's out there that, that we um, have to earn and strive. As a matter of fact, um, at the end of the, uh, the life of the Buddha, one of the things that he is um, said to have said at the very end of his life is this, never stop striving. That is so different than what Christianity says. Because Christianity says, it is finished. The striving has taken place for you. There's, um, some of you are familiar with this movie. At the end of this, um, at the end of the movie, uh, Saving Private Ryan, um, and you know, Saving Private Ryan is talking about, uh, it's a, it's a World War II movie, um, in you know, June of 1944, the War Department learns that three out of four boys in a family named Ryan died in battle on the same day. And the Army's top general orders that the fourth son be rescued from behind German lines, where he parachuted on D-Day. And an elite squad of Army Rangers, um, led by Tom Hanks, uh, is assigned to find Private Ryan. And this is a true story. Their search leads to a bridge where, where German tanks are trying to break through allied lines. And there the squad is destroyed as their quest finally succeeds. They actually find Private Ryan. And as the captain who saved Ryan lies dying on the bridge, surrounded by bodies of the men from his squad, all of these men whose job it was to, to save Private Ryan, he draws Ryan close and gasps, earn this, earn it. Now, the movie concludes with Ryan as an old man returning to the cemetery where the men who died for him were buried. 
Falling to his knees at Captain Miller's grave, he says to the white plaster cross, every day I think about what you said to me that day on the bridge. I've tried to live my life the best I could. I hope that was enough. I hope that at, la- at least in your eyes, I earned what all of you have done for me. Turning to his wife who comes up beside him, he stammers, tell me I have led a good life. Tell me I'm a good man. I think many people live their life like that. But the reality is, Jesus paid it all. You don't have to live your life feeling like you have to earn your salvation or live up to the standard. Rather, we live up to the standard of Jesus, not trying to earn our salvation, but as a response to our salvation. We obey and we love and we serve and we do all of these things because of our salvation. Brothers and sisters, I never want you to feel like at the end of your life, like you have not lived up to a standard because the reality is you haven't. (laughs) You haven't lived up to the standard. I don't live up to the standard at all. The standard is absolute perfection. It is utter holiness, and there is only one who lives up to that standard, and his name is Jesus. And if we believe and trust in Jesus for our salvation then he credits his righteousness to our account. And we are accounted as the children of God, most beloved by the Father. You can't live up to that standard. Only Jesus can live up to that standard. In front of us, we have the the, the table. And the table is set for those who would trust and believe, for those who know that they are sinners and that who know that the body of Christ was given for them. This cup represents the new covenant in his blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. And what we find is that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This is what this table represents. This is what this table reminds us is that we do not live up to the standard. We cannot be perfect. But there was one and his name was Jesus. And as we come to the table I want you to come and know that you are saved by the blood of the Lamb. And that's it. I'm saved by the blood of the Lamb. And I am redeemed and I am reconciled. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we know that this bread and this juice always remains bread and juice. But Father, you show up spiritually. Father, you pour forth grace upon grace to your people. And Father, I pray, Lord, that as we come and we receive this, that you would build our faith, that we would be washed in the blood of the Lamb, knowing that we are saved and beloved and forgiven. Father, you know all of our sins, and yet because of Christ, we are forgiven. So Father, as we come, Father, we pray that our faith would increase that you would encourage us to live for you and that we might abide with Jesus. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.